the U.S. Forest Service. Known for forests. That's it. Nobody thinks much about it, so let's have some fun. Let's find out why the U.S. Forest Service is secretly incredibly fascinating. there, folks. Welcome to a whole new podcast episode, a podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm not alone. Two returning guests this week. Dan Hopper is an incredible comedy writer. He's a managing editor at Ranker. He's written for The New Yorker and for The Washington Post and many more fine publications. And then Chet Wilde is a stand-up comedian. He's a podcaster all over, in particular on the Unpopular Opinion Podcast Network. And then Chet is from the town of Towanda, New York, which is near Buffalo, New York, which made him a key guest in a passion project podcast of mine called One Way to Make an Emoji, about me making the bison emoji and so much more. Also, I've gathered all of our zip codes and used internet resources like native-land.ca, to acknowledge that I recorded this on the traditional land of the Catawba, Eno, and Shikori peoples. Acknowledge Dan recorded this on the traditional land of the Lenape people. Acknowledge Chet recorded this on the traditional land of the Gabrielino Ortongva and Keech and Chumash and Fernandeño Tataviam peoples. And acknowledge that in all of our locations, native people are very much still here. That feels worth doing on each episode. And today's episode is about the U.S. Forest Service, which is a patron-chosen topic. Thank you to Jared Halverson for the suggestion there. He and the people who voted for it gave me a push. I I probably never would have thought to do this topic without the the suggestion and the push, and I am so glad you did, because it turns out there's an amazing show here about a massive chunk of the United States. One other thing, if you are not a U.S. resident, I still think this show is very relevant to you because American forestry practices influence the rest of the world and uh, those American wildfires you read about, see things about, that, that influences the world in its own way. And I think that's all the setup you need. So please sit back or keep climbing those branches, you spry tree climber, you. Good for you. Either way, here's this episode of Secretly Incredibly Fascinating with Dan Hopper and Chet Wild. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Dan, Chet, it is so good to have you. And of course, I always start by asking guests their relationship to the topic or opinion of it. Either of you can start, but how do you feel about this? It's a patron-chosen topic. Thank you, Jared Halverson. But how do you guys feel about the U.S. Forest Service? Uh, well, I, I was just saying to Alex before I came on the show, I was like, oh, man, national parks. I love national parks. They're great. I have all these stories about going to national parks. This is going to be fun. Yeah. Then I Googled it, and uh, it's not the same thing. So I have <laughs> no idea what my relationship to it is, and I'm looking forward to finding out just like the viewers. <laughs> well, I thought I had a good answer, but now I'm insecure based on his answer because do I not know what we're talking about? <laughs> Wait, is there a difference between national parks and national forests? There is organizationally. Yeah. 
And I, I learned that in the process of researching this. I think I, I, I should have asked Jared why he suggested this, but also a bunch of people voted for it. So I'm curious exactly why the audience is excited about it. Because it, it turns out there's a bunch of amazing things, and I wonder what they knew. Or I wonder like if they knew this difference between the National Park Service and the Forest Service. I, I just didn't want to come on and be like, oh, yeah, I've been to Yellowstone and have everyone like, <laughs> you noob. <laughs> it's, not a it's not a national forest. Yeah. I, I'm really excited to be talking about this topic because I background for people, all three of us on this show are from the U.S., and I, th I think many Americans have been to a national forest or another piece of land this this organization handles. Like it's a very common thing you run into. They handle about a quarter of all the public lands in the country, but not the national parks. That's a whole separate thing. Yeah, the national forests are the ones that the font on the wooden signs as you drive through them is kind of in, like semi-cursive. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. They won't talk about it much, but we'll link an article from Atlas Obscura about a guy who was a career-long park ranger and then just got into making the signs for them and came up with just really cool graphic design for the signs. Yeah. Very visual. We won't talk about it much. But it's it's a cool brown cursive sign. Yeah. The national parks are trash. We don't like them. That's, <laughs> that's what we're here to talk oh, yeah. about. <laughs> they, they must have to explain themselves all the time that they don't work for the National Parks Department, right? Yeah, probably. Well, I, I think from here we can get into the numbers because the first one gets into some of that. And on every episode, our first fascinating thing about the topic is a quick set of fascinating numbers and statistics. And that is in a segment called Now is the Winter of Our Discontent, Made Glorious Summer by This Stats of York. And uh, that name was submitted by Josh Brown. Thank you, Josh. We, uh, we have a new name for this segment every week. Please make them as silly and wacky and bad as possible. Submit to SifPod on Twitter or to SifPod at gmail.com. I'm going to one of the last ever tapings of Conan tonight before he retires his show. And nothing he can wow. do, no surprise guest, will top that bit there. Just there. <laughs> this is a very big compliment. You've, Thank you've you. already ruined Conan for me because nothing is going to be more comedically chef's kiss. Richard the Third stuff yes. in the stats. Yeah, cool. Did you, did, <laughs> Move over, Martin Short. <laughs> did you have to stop doing song versions because you got like sued for royalties, and so now it's just public domain stuff where you're just like, uh, she'll be coming around the stats when she comes. Like all these like a hundred year old songs that are like <laughs> you won't probably won't get sued by some estate. <laughs> Yeah, I, I believe Josh and maybe some other people have explicitly sent suggestions where they're like, it's not a song. I want to give you options. Like, I want I want to broaden your horizons. And so that there's a movement. There's a movement in the fan base going on. All right. Cool. Yeah. Famous, a famous different Shakespearean monologue each time. I like it. <laughs> what if I did long monologues? Like, I just made the guests watch me do Iago for <laughs> five minutes. You know, that'd be great. Let's try it out. <laughs> we stats we happy stats we brand of statistics anyway <laughs> yeah so the we all knew the gist that there are national forests in the u.s and that's somehow separate from the national parks first number here is 1905 and the year 1905 is when the u.s forest service was founded it is part of the federal government it's also part of the u.s department of agriculture so the the National Park Service and the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management and a bunch of other things are part of the Department of the Interior. 
which has like a bison logo and is more famous for doing public lands, nature stuff. But the Forest Service is part of the Department of Agriculture, uh, partly because it's involved in sustainable logging. Like some, some of those forests and lands are used for cutting down the trees in a way that they can come back. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I know that's a lot of like uh, federal administration bureaucracy information, so it's not amazingly yeah. exciting, but it is, uh, it's what? like the division and why these guys aren't national park employees. <laughs> What if this is the episode that finally breaks the show? <laughs> you're like, you're like, oh, this just isn't fascinating. <laughs> yeah, you set, you finished that sentence and neither guest chimed in. Yeah. Well, I was uh, stuck I was on. Like, Seems like an um, organized administration, I suppose. <laughs> I have no idea how to riff on that. <laughs> this would probably be an episode of itself, uh, in itself, but sustainable logging. Is that really a thing? Like, yeah. How does that you cut down the trees and then you plant more trees and then you wait 200 years? <laughs> Not that long. It doesn't take that long. Plant more trees more quickly and cut them down even faster. Yeah, some people want them to do that. It's it's actually a thing going on. Yeah. And as far as how much power they have to do that, the next number here is 193 million acres. And 193 million acres is how much land they handle. They say that, uh, also, no one knows what that means, but 193 million acres, according to their website, is about the size of Texas. All right. The the sites I found say that Texas is about 7% of the country. Yeah, that's a lot So that's of significant. For some reason, I immediately think of uh, a scene in Castaway when he's calculating how big the search area is, and he's just like, that's twice the size of Texas. And it's just like... Tom Hanks' character just offhand calculates exactly the square mileage of two Texases. It's like, damn. All right. I mean, it helps the audience because you're like, oh, now I understand how big how big that is. But isn't there um, also a floating uh, garbage mass in the Pacific Ocean the size of Texas? That could be the 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 bigness of the world. I feel like we try to use Texas as a way to capture it, yeah, and it yeah. just just becomes kind of more confusing. Then I'm like, okay, so when I when we drove to Austin from San Antonio one time, if I did that more, you know, like that becomes my system and it doesn't work. Doesn't yeah. it? It's, it's wide. It takes a long time to drive through Texas. Yeah. Even driving it, across the narrow part up top mm -hmm. took like two thirds mm. of a day. Yeah. It's a large state. There's a lot of this. These guys have a lot of responsibility. I'm, I'm secretly incredibly fascinated. <laughs> I'm just trying to get in the super tease at the beginning of the season. So, so, so you see this ad. I'm going to keep dropping quotes so I'm in the trailers. Well, this is going to be some kind of night. Our biggest episode yet is a thing you could say. Whoa, you no way. A Texas-sized Alex, episode. Like, Alex, Alex pulling a sheet off of something and we're just like, whoa. And you're like, I got to I gotta tune in to see what, what is under that sheet. I don't, <laughs> even though it's an audio podcast, I'll be able to tell from their voices how fascinating <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, and uh, as far as how much they do, the next number here is 20. Because twenty, Whoa. sorry, I'm just, I'm, just, uh, I'm just like I gotta up the energy, and then I just like way overshoot it, and I'm like, <laughs> like okay, you don't need to like patronize us. Just loose screaming as the episode goes on. Twenty, <laughs> like I didn't even say what the thing is yet. 
Yeah. <laughs> so 20, that's the number of designated national grasslands in the United States. So the Forest Service handles 154 national forests and less famously handles 20 national grasslands, which cover about 4 million acres. So they're also doing like prairie stuff on top of the forests. Really Very busy. like challenging how few preconceived notions I have about a thing. It's just like, how many, you know how many grasslands they have? I'm like, I don't know, like 20. I'm like, oh, all right, <laughs> sounds right. <laughs> probably probably about how many they have. You're making me question why I live in Los Angeles when there's all this available land out there. Oh, yeah. That's one of my more significant national forest experiences is going into Angeles National Forest, which is a huge forest just like northeast of the main part of L.A. And we we went from, you know, L.A. weather and then it was chilly up there. We were in winter coats in one drive. You know, there's a bunch of loose public open environmental land all over the country, especially in the West. Mm -hmm. A lot of the story will be in the Western U.S. because that's where they put a lot of these. So is the is their reasoning the same as the national parks? It's funny to preface with this, but I'm like, I watched uh, three episodes of that Ken Burns national parks thing before quitting, but it was very interesting. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, th the, I think they're some of the impetus behind forming the national parks was the U.S. realizing that, like, for tourism purposes, like they couldn't compete with a lot of Europe's like history because they had like so much you know, man-made history and there's like Rome and Greece and all these old cathedrals and stuff. Right. And yeah. so like their one leg up, even though it was only a, you know, hundred year old country then was having Yellowstone, Yosemite pieces of natural beauty that like didn't really exist in a lot of places in super metropolitan areas around the world. The basic pitch is here's how great things would look if humans didn't inhabit it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think it was accelerated because Na Niagara Falls really quickly became the tourist oh. bleep hole that it is. <laughs> so I grew uh, up 45 minutes from Niagara Falls. Nice. And it always blew my mind. Like that was like the lazy field trip that our high school was taking. Up. Yeah. But like how many people would travel from around the world to visit Niagara Falls, arguably the shittiest city <laughs> in the entire country. On both sides just, or just the U.S. side? Well, that's the thing. Canadian. Oh. So the Canadian side is much better in terms of the city, but the downside is you have to look at the U.S. side, whereas on the U.S. side, you oh. get to view the better <laughs> side, but you're you're stuck in the <laughs> tourist trap. That makes a lot of sense, actually, right? <laughs> on the office, in G when Jim and Pam get married in Niagara Falls, mm. Jim does like a 20 second thing about like, turns out Niagara Falls isn't that great. And it captures what Niagara Falls is perfectly. It's oh. like a casino <laughs> and a bunch of closed businesses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, it's interesting because it was like that as in the 1800s, or early 1900s too. It like really quickly people bought up all the area around it and to charge money to like look at it. And so yeah. I think, you know, federally designated Yosemite was an attempt to have that not happen to have people be like, this is beautiful. And then immediately buy it and kind of carve it up and put up wax museums everywhere. And so we did something right. Yeah. Also, cause you're both from kind of the same part of the country. Chet's from Western New York and, and Dan is from Western Pennsylvania. And, and I, I from further away at Illinois, I think have still been to Niagara Falls three times. Like it's just a thing, part, partly going to Syracuse and it's on the way, but it, but it's a thing that I think is a real Mecca. 
And that and the national parks are more famous than our national forests. I think that's just a bigger landmark. Yeah, I think on my bucket list was to visit all the national parks, and I'm going to change it to national forests. They seem uh, <laughs> less popular. <laughs> I am not going to do that. Sorry, episode. That's okay. But... <laughs> Well, and, they, and also this U.S. Forest Service has some responsibilities and goals beyond and different from what the Park Service does. And and another number here that gets into that is 100,000 acres. So 100,000 acres, that number is the minimum size for a forest fire to fit the definition of what's called a megafire. Whoa. And the New Yorker says that term was coined in 2011 following just a series of fires that big all happening at once because we have a ton of fires out west now. So they invented the term mega fire for the U.S. Forest Service's business dealing with forest fires. Yeah, climate change is happening so aggressively that we we only recognize the mega fires now. If you don't burn at least 100,000 <laughs> acres, get the f*** out. You're not news. Yeah, what are you even doing here? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's probably not good that we've invented an entire new class of national disaster in this decade after, like, <laughs> millions of years of Earth's existence. It's, like, got pretty bad around 2011. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why you guys moved back east. You didn't want to deal with the two to three months of smoke-filled air. That's part of it. When you, when you live in Southern California, PSA for, for viewers, because I'm, I'm from the East Coast, lived, lived in LA for like five years, uh, at least twice a week in the summer, you'll get a text from a relative saying, are those fires near you? Yes. And you're yeah. just like, oh, I got to check the news. Something's on fire. <laughs> just like, And they're like, yeah, it is, but it's only 96,000 acres, so it's not even a mega fire yet. <laughs> <laughs> You just get so mad when people try to put out non-mega fires. <laughs> You're just like, why even bother? Save the water. Who cares? I mean, that is a problem, right? We're, we're going into a drought again. More mega fires plus less water equals even more mega fires. Yeah. We'll have another class by 2024 or something. Like hyper fires. <laughs> when, I, when I did live in L.A., I managed to train my family out of checking on me for every earthquake and fire. And I think I got them trained right before the fires were directly next to all the freeways in LA and then like visible from Burbank. And and then they stopped asking me and I had to be like, uh, uh, Hey, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, it was a real, <laughs> the, real bummer for the them. Boy who cried fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then you died in a fire. This it's podcast true. is dedicated to Alex. <laughs> what so this is great if you go to the wikipedia for the angeles national forest item one geography and then there's 1.1 wilderness areas 1.2 climate under item two history then 2.1 wildfires then 2.11 loop fire 2.12 station fire 2.13 2012 fire. like there's there's a greater list of fires than anything else on this page. R racial slur controversy. You're like, what? <laughs> Unrelated. Bob. In between fires. They said right. some on Twitter that they got in trouble for. Well, and this, this department too, it's, it's more than just land. It's rangers handling it and a whole operation. And we have three big takeaways for this episode. That takes us into the first one. Takeaway number one. 
the U.S. Forest Service was created by one eccentric, grieving rich guy. Nice. And by his president best friend. One more time, the U.S. Forest Service was created by one eccentric, grieving rich guy and his president best friend. Does he have a name? Yeah, his name is Gifford Pincho. Oh, that's a rich guy name if I've ever heard it. Big time. <laughs> yeah, and, and also, before talking about that specific creation, it feels like necessary to mention that the, the, the real context for creating all these national forests is partly pushing Native people off the land. And and genocides and an imperial war against Mexico and and uh, just a lot of hunting and pillaging and colonizing that created the Western United States. That that's the roots of it. That's where it came from. In the process of that, also colonists who came in did a lot of destructive logging and mining and other human development. And so that, like we said, was the spark for national parks. And it also ends up being a spark for our national forests, pushing humans off it. There were people there before. Mm-hmm. So lands that could have been native reservations, they kicked people off Became so they could reserve the land. Yeah, yeah, and part of part of the whole process of arranging these national forests involved shifting existing native people into specific reservations that were separate from the forests. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of taking land and organizing it in forcible ways in in the history of this. Well, figure it would turn evil at some point on the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Who, what was the grieving portion? What was he? Well, hey, just for, we'll do his background in general, but also the the creation of the, the very first steps toward a U.S. Forest Service were that the Department of the Interior was formed in 1849 to manage federal land, and then they were in charge of Yellowstone National Park when that was created in 1872. But then from there, the question became like, what do we do with all the rest of this land we seized as a country? Like, uh, like we, we took it. Now we have to do something with it. And uh, two, of the, two of the big sources for this episode are two amazing books. One of them is called Natural Rivals, John Muir, Gifford Pinchot, and the Creation of America's Public Lands by John Clayton. And then the other is The Big Burn, Teddy Roosevelt, and the Fire That Saved America by Timothy Egan. If you want like a super complete rundown of of how this process happened, those books are great for that. Uh, the short version is that the U.S. created a set of interlocking agencies for running public land. A key one is the U.S. Forest Service, and this guy Gifford Pinchot is like like single handedly created the U.S. Forest Service. He's he's why we have one, and no one's heard of him for the most part. Yeah, I'd never heard of him. I, I sent you guys like a portrait of him in his prime. It's a it's a skinny guy with a big mustache. Uh, and he was born into wealth in Connecticut. Part of his family's money came from logging, which is fun uh, as just a fact. <laughs> but he was educated at the Exeter Prep School and then Yale and was in Skull and Bones. He spent his summers at uh, his family's castle in Pennsylvania. It was called Gray Towers. It had a bunch of tourists. It had 23 fireplaces. Uh, he he was a very, very rich guy, and then he decided to devote his life to the wilderness and the outdoors and forestry. And I still can't tell, is this for good or for evil? Yeah. I think, I, I would say it's for good, but also, like, those books especially get into a lot of debate as far as exactly how we run our public land, and people like John Muir were saying, let's just leave it totally untouched. Like, people can visit carefully, otherwise just leave it how it is. And Pinchot was all about completely controlling that natural land 
Like, let's do things that let us cut all the wood down in a sustainable way. Let's do things that let people visit it and do recreation in specific ways. And also he believed that we needed to run those lands to prevent wildfires and to prevent stuff from burning down. Well, yeah, that last point is perhaps the middle point that I would imagine that I sit in, which is like, let's for the most part not touch the land. But, you know, if there are certain things that are catalysts for mega, mega, mega fires all the time, yeah. maybe let's uh, dig some fire trenches. <laughs> so or or just... listen to the greatest president of all time of any country ever and, you know, rake the forest. <laughs> That would prevent the forest fire. Did uh, so was John Muir against like even draw like you know the loop that goes around Yellowstone that takes you to the main attractions something like that you know not have a you know buildings on the land or anything or what? That's a good question. I, I think I think basically as minimal as possible. But yeah, I'm, I'm not clear uh-huh. on his exact plans there. One one sign that says "Welcome to Yellowstone," and then like ten million acres. Right, it's like this is it. Good luck. Well, they also there was a debate between those two guys when there was a proposal to build a dam at what's called Hetch Hetchy, and Pinchot said, "Let's build a dam. It can just be part of the system we build here." And then Muir said, "No, that's way too much changing of the land." And the dam ended up getting built. Muir lost. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and so Pinchot, he has then a few different things going on that guide him into forestry. One is that he pretty quickly decides not to build an entire family for a long time because he falls in love with a lady who has tuberculosis, falls in love with Laura Hoteling, and she loves him back and they do everything together. But she is like dying of tuberculosis the entire time, passes away in 1894. And then for the next 20 years, he in his private time is still writing letters to her and like mentally asking her for advice when he has issues. He also uses psychics and seances to stay in contact with her. He basically spends the next 20 years or so grieving this lady and working on building a forest service. That's his whole deal the entire time. I'm married to my forests now. More or less. Yeah. Yeah. And like her in death. Yeah. That's, he definitely told someone that later in his life. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that too. That's very much the, <laughs> was this early 1900s, did you say? Yeah. It's very Victorian stuff. Yeah. So that's like right in the spiritualism craze where, you know, everyone's going to seances and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly so right. Yeah. It's like very, it's like really like proper and acceptable to like talk to your dead loved ones, like in the 1910s and 20s. And then the other thing he does is he basically invents the job of forestry in the U.S. He wanted to study it, needed to go to France to go to a forestry school. Later on in 1900, his rich family will found a forestry school at Yale, which is the first one in the U.S. Uh, But before that, he needed to study it there. And then he declared himself a consulting forester and started working for cities that were laying out their parks and the federal government. But the trouble is that in the late 1800s, the U.S. government loved just selling public land to businesses. It was a really big source of money. And so Pinchot is working for the government, but specifically in a role where he can't do anything. And then what happens is in 1901, his personal friend and buddy becomes the president because William McKinley is assassinated and Pinchot's friend Teddy Roosevelt becomes president. And where was William McKinley assassinated? 
Uh, Buffalo, New York, I believe. There we go. Upstate New York. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all coming together. They named a mall after him, so totally worth it. <laughs> the McKinley Mall. Yeah. I, this is this is becoming a big, like, New York throughway episode. Like, Buffalo and Syracuse and, and getting a Niagara and stuff. We'll do a Wegmans bonus show. Just, we'll really focus. <laughs> oh, we have Wegmans in PA. I can I can chime in on that. Yeah, good, good, good. You're, you're tempting me to cool. drift off path even more with these possibilities, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God you edit this. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll end up, uh, the final product will be a coherent, seemingly dialogue that's on point. That, that pieces together this conspiracy of McKinley's assassination that we've just cracked in real time on this podcast. What's our conspiracy? That uh, Pinchot killed him? Well, yeah, he's, he's rich, rich, connected guy. Yeah. Can't get anything done. Right. President selling off all of the, you know, he's he's grieving. He's grieving for his his physical homeland and he's grieving for his, his dead spouse. Oh, and, yeah. you know, if that's the case, you know, sometimes you, you have to commit a, a small evil to for, serve the greater good, right? So... <laughs> That's has been him killed, for you. gets Teddy Roosevelt in, the rest, you know, keep, keep keep going. Where's it go from here? It's for the trees. Yeah, this tracks. Yeah. yeah, other than it not being true, it adds up. Like, all the parts are there, totally. Uh, no. <laughs> Upstate New York, we mentioned it two or three times. That's, I don't know, that's that's weird. Right, Niagara. pattern. Yeah, sure, yeah. Kill, he kills him. I mean, that's not near, that's right, pretty close to Buffalo, right? Yeah. So you, oh, right kill the president. you want to send the president a message that we're selling our most beautiful public <laughs> land to <laughs> private business interests, where would you kill him? Right Niagara near Falls. Niagara Falls. Yeah. Boom. 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 We got him. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's just me saying a lot of correct stuff, pretty much. Yeah, it sounds That's right. what it's like. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway. Well, with the, with Roosevelt, Roosevelt is basically our first president, other than a little bit Grant and Lincoln, but Roosevelt's the first president to be really enthusiastic about nature. Uh, and also he and Pinchot had been friends for years and years. They also spent a lot of time doing like stereotypical Teddy Roosevelt sports together. They would box each other. They would wrestle. They would both note it in their diaries that they'd gotten together and done done man stuff. <laughs> Roosevelt in 1901 ascends to the presidency According to Timothy Egan's book, a full week before he's even in the White House, he's meeting with Pinchot about how to build a huge federal forest service. In one letter in 1901, Roosevelt says, quote, we dream the same dreams, end quote, to Pinchot. Too bad w Mick K stands in the way, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Never figured out what that meant, though. Anyway. Right. Who could say? Yeah. And then, so there, from there, Roosevelt is excited to make Pinchot in charge. And then in the next election, when Roosevelt actually runs in 1904, he wins by the biggest margin in American history at the time. And so from there, he feels empowered to found in 1905 the U.S. Forest Service with Pinchot as the first U.S. chief forester. And it's this guy who wants to start the practice of forestry, where you have rangers managing it and specific contracts for limited amounts of timber and, and like a, a real systematized version of nature. That's the goal. Without that, we'd never have the cartoon Yogi Bear. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Ruin the whole premise of, 
of a yeah. ranger. <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's really not many times in American history where I feel like the course of events bends against like the collective business will, right? Yeah. So, like, did did they try to sell this to like, you know, business magnates as like? in the long run, this will help sustain your business? Or was it like clearly like this is kind of making a public good choice against business and that was like a huge fight? Because I feel like that never happens now, ever. Right. That's an excellent question. And I think the answer is the second thing. They basically did it over the objections of businessmen. Wow. And in the long run, this helps split the Republican Party. There will be a, a very boring controversy called the Pinchot-Ballinger Affair. Because <laughs> Pinchot, uh, while under the next president, Taft, gets in a fight with the Secretary of the Interior, Ballinger, because he believes Ballinger is giving too much stuff away to businesses. And uh, then Pinchot is fired, and it makes Roosevelt so mad. He runs against Taft in 1912, and Woodrow Wilson wins, and, and there's a whole three-candidate thing. Wow. Partly because TR's favorite buddy, Pinchot, got fired for mm. trying to do forest stuff too much. This is now, now this is this is the podcast really back on track. This is just like inno- <laughs> seriously, it's like this innocuous thing that led to like huge repercussions that yeah. I had no idea. I've never heard of any of this. Yeah, later on in Teddy Roosevelt's autobiography, Teddy Roosevelt, who's that? No, I'm just kidding. Oh no, in a... I mean, I never heard of the controversy. Right. <laughs> it's like <laughs> two Roosevelts. What? That doesn't make sense. There was an America then. <laughs> what? It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Yeah, later later on in Teddy Roosevelt's autobiography, he will write that Gifford Pinchot was like the best part of his administration. I'm paraphrasing, but but this is this is a surprisingly important person in a really mm-hmm. famous administration that just no nobody's really heard of. A, a forest guy. Yeah, I guess I mean I guess it's not surprising what we know historically that you'd think that the fir- you know them making that decision and saying, "Hey, this is what we're going to do." Sorry. The first thing business interests would do is like, be like, all right, next election, we're going to put our guy in there and like yeah. rally behind some friendly, wash your hands, you your, you know, <laughs> secretary of the interior, some ex like logging firm guy becomes like, you know, in the cabinet, that kind of thing. Thousands of people putting tons of money behind a thing is always going to be like, have stronger momentum than like, oh no, who'd be good at that? Yeah. So it's cool when the latter... <laughs> wins for a little bit in american history yeah absolutely it's a really yeah this is a really exciting story because it's it's especially a thing where under grover cleveland there had been some acres of forest set aside but nobody was empowered to protect them and then under teddy roosevelt and pinchot they set aside an additional 16 million acres of general land they transfer 63 million acres from interior to agriculture so pinchot can run it And he hires and trains hundreds of forest rangers who are all like very specifically molded in Pinchot's image and beliefs. New York Times in 1909 said, quote, wherever you find a forest service man or woman, you find a devoted believer in Gifford Pinchot. He is the little father of his people, end quote. Cool. And also apparently after he was fired from his job, he went into the office the next day to get his stuff and everybody was crying like full on weeping about losing this amazing leader of this oh. unique thing. Like there, there was no other guy who's this good at for us. It's a dead poet society moment in American yeah. history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Off of that, we're going to a short break followed by the big takeaways. See you in a sec. 
Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! It's hard to explain what happens on Jordan Jesse Go. So, I had my kids do it. Saying swear words. Saying swear words. Yeah, um, bad jokes. Bad jokes? Bad jokes. Maybe it's like you tell people that you're going to interview them, and then you just stay there like, like really quiet. And try and creep them out. <laughs> it's just really boring. Because of Jordan, right? Not me. Because of both of you. Oh. Subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show for grown-ups. Yeah, they're yeah they're they're Forrester, like oh oh Forrester my Forrester. Yeah, that was basically. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and from there there is kind of a push to destroy this organization as soon as Pinchot mm-hmm. is gone. And that takes us into the next takeaway. Takeaway number two. One massive wildfire saved the U.S. Forest Service, and they also might have overreacted to that. Thanks to one huge wildfire, we still have a U.S. Forest Service, partly because all those business interests that objected to it just tried to destroy it immediately. They, they were like, great, Pinchot's gone. We can do it. Mm-hmm. So, so what happened with the forest fire? A massive fire happened and they were like, maybe we need this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That, then it was well, widely justified. Because they couldn't put it out because they couldn't manage it, right? Yeah, they did a lot of heroic work to slow it down and ultimately manage it. And then people said, oh, not only do we need a forest service, we need to fund it like crazy because Western wildfires are going to be a thing. That's something we need to watch out for. They just sent strike breakers after the fire to like hit it with like clubs. <laughs> it didn't work, and they're like, hmm, "Maybe we need, maybe we need someone who knows what they're doing to do this." <laughs> like pouring a bucket of Pinkertons on it. Like a bunch of guys come <laughs> yeah. out of the bucket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then they were like, "Oh, we need more people to put these fires out. We better build a for-profit private prison industry." Where we can exploit free labor, labor, yeah. and not call it slavery. Can we put the prison around yeah. the fire and <laughs> imprison the fire? Imprison the fire. <laughs> the yeah, fire well. is breaking rocks in a jumpsuit. Like, okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> I am guilty of being a fire. It makes sense. Um, but and I don't mean to bypass it. We'll link about what Chat described about prison labor, especially in California, being used for firefighting. It's it's basically slavery. It's not good. There's mm-hmm. some there's some good recent updated legislation. I mean, basically out of necessity last year because we need more firefighters. Where Newsom signed a thing into law, I believe, where people out of prison who are trained as firefighters in prison can now be eligible to become firefighters, the public service. Like it was insane before that. You can yeah. fight fires and and when you're uh, an inmate, and then once you're out of prison, they're like, no, 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 you're not allowed to be a firefighter. 
Uh, Not if we have to pay you a living wage. Because, yeah, because you can't be paid prison wages. That's yeah. ridiculous. Well, just, you know, whatever right? stigmas yeah. there are about, yeah. you know. Convex. But, hey, mm-hmm. that's, how, that's how you reform a convict. You, you provide oppor- mm-hmm. you arm them yeah. with skills and provide them with opportunities. Right. And we need more firemen, and especially for forest fires. It's a, it's a very, in many ways, a very thankless, you know, job that you're risking your life. Mm-hmm. Well, and and um, to, to get into like saving the Forest Service, they made that job hard when they tried to kill it. And they being congressmen bought by businesses and then also just businesses in the U.S. Timothy Egan's book talks a lot about specific newspapers just pushing anti-Forest Service propaganda because we were, they were bought and paid for by Western businesses, like saying that public forests were a burden on the land and useless. Um, also, Congress squeezed the budget of the Forest Service it started in 1905, but by 1910, one single ranger had to cover an average of 300,000 acres, Jeez. which is a, a bonkers amount of land. Yeah. And then once Pinchot was out of office, apparently businesses got so confident that they could eliminate this that they started targeting individual forest rangers. And in some cases, they chased them off their assigned land by hiring killers who issued death threats. Wow. So there were like gunmen hired by businesses to tell forest rangers they would be murdered if they didn't stop working. So it's not really that far off from what we were joking about a second ago. Yeah, bucket of Pinkertons. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. much pretty much the goal. Yeah. Yeah, um, Jesus. And so and Pinchot, so Pinchot got fired in January of 1910. And from the research I could find, it seems like these businesses were pretty much going to succeed in killing it. But starting in August of 1910... The you know so within a year is one of the biggest wildfires in American history, and the winter before it was extremely snowy, but then light on rain, so that made the forests very dry and hard. And starting around Wallace, Idaho, there was what's now called the Big Burn, and it's a fire that in just two days burned 3.25 million acres across Idaho, Montana, Washington State, and the Canadian province of British Columbia. So in two days, over 3 million acres burned all at once. 85 people died, and most of them were firefighters or forest rangers who, like, stood in the way of the fire and didn't evacuate and tried to prevent it. And so there are a bunch of heroic stories from this time of forest rangers uh, working for the Forest Service and fighting the fire and helping. Jeez. What did, what did you say the, the mega fire was? 100,000 acres? Yeah, 100,000 yeah. acres. And this is three over 3 million? Yeah, yeah. Jeez. So even this is like I know we have huge wildfires now, but even by modern standards, this is yeah. an absolute tragedy. Just orders a disaster. of magnitude bigger. And yeah, they don't have you know all these helicopters that can drop down it, and mm-hmm. all the technology to track you know easily track the winds and movement and drones and all this other shit. like. Yeah the the evacuation stories in these books involve trains. That's how like that's how they could get people out of town, Jeez. and if you couldn't get to a rail line, you were stuck and probably burned up. Mm-hmm. There also there's one there are a bunch of heroic firefighters in it. One of them is a guy named Ed Pulaski who was leading a 45-man crew in Idaho and knew the land so well that he knew an abandoned mining tunnel they could hide in when the fire got really bad. And so he was able to save 40 of his 45 men by like getting them in this tunnel and also keeping them in there until the fire cleared. But they, you know, there were like people like this doing really exciting and impressive things. So after this happened, 
did the government or the press or so, you know someone used it as pushback against the business interests or who who was like the catalyst for being like this is our shot to like save this thing? That's a good question, and it it's partly Pinchot's after effects. So what happens uh-huh. is uh, like he had been fired right before this, but. While he was running it, he'd always pitch the department as a firefighting organization. Mm-hmm. And he'd even claim that they need to stop all fires permanently in the West. Like that was the goal of of this forest management. And so between that and the news of this fire, people said, oh, well, the, the organization that exists to do this needs all the funding in the world. Like, let's keep the U.S. Mm-hmm. Forest Service going to handle this. With the business interest like hey, this actually might help us and we shouldn't fight it as hard? Or were they like, let's just eat it for a second and then undo this in a couple of years when people stop caring? More the second thing. Yeah. There, there's no yeah. clear signs that any businesses were helping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Very cool. Yeah. But and also then the last thing with this takeaway is that the Forest Service ended up surviving because it's a firefighting organization, but that maybe led to worsening fires all the way in the modern day because the the goal became total fire prevention. By 1935, they had a rule called the 10 a.m. rule, which means that any time a fire is reported, it needs to be completely controlled and contained by 10 a.m. the next morning. But the thing is, we've known for a long time that small fires and controlled fires in a forest can be good. Like it burns out old undergrowth and some species benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And we'll link a couple amazing National Geographic articles where they explore the idea that like the Forest Service, after this big burn, like prevented the policy of doing small fires and controlled fires. And then that has maybe led to worsening wildfires, especially in the modern day, because not only is the undergrowth not burned out, but also the Forest Service will plant a lot of like agriculture style pine trees. They call it pines and lines that are very easy to burn because they're very easy to log. Uh, so there, there's the ways that this like firefighting job ended up making the fires worse in the end. Hmm. So it's a, it's a strange organization. I mean, it's definitely one of those topics where it's like, I feel like I, you would have to, you know, the common person probably doesn't know much about it. So you would just be hearing two different experts and who knows what their incentives are saying like, we have to do this to the forest. No, we have to do this. And you're just like, I... I have no idea who's right, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah, that's part um, of it. And even, even in the past there, there, there was kind of an internal U S forest service pride in just managing the forest as much as possible. Um, there's a historian named Stephen Pine who national geographic talked to it's spelled P Y N E. I know it sounds like pine tree. It's really fun. Uh, but he says that in the mid 1910s, there was a debate in California about whether to start doing light burning and California's chief engineer was in favor of it. There were logging companies that got on board with being in favor of it, but the U.S. Forest Service prevented it. And according to Pine, quote, it was seen as a challenge to public forestry, to public land, and to forestry as science. And so the light-burning Native American-style approach was dismissed as Paiute forestry and unacceptable to a new world power, end quote. Wow. So he's arguing that they refused to do some light burning partly because they wanted to like be different from the native american approach uh in a way that was probably racist partly oh another common theme on this podcast right yeah the origins of so many different things you're like oh yeah they just were racist yeah it kind of it goes into its own yeah 
Mm-hmm. But and and wildfires are complicated, and another definite contributing factor is some recent administrations cut the budget of the U.S. Forest Service. So if they also just have less money to fight fires, that's not good too. Mm-hmm. Remember when uh, there was like a frozen budget and the parks weren't staffed at all, and like people were volunteering oh. to like clean the park bathrooms, and like Joshua Tree has irreversible damage because people were just going in there with their jeeps, plowing trees over, having the time of their lives. The thing is, there's so much dysfunction Yeah, in that four years. It's all a blur. <laughs> it is. This topic is interesting, though, because it's like, I know there's like very few things you could call bipartisan anymore. And certainly like funding the government is not something the right has ever wanted to do. I feel like if you talk to like, you know, average Republicans, people have so much pride in like national parks, travel preserving yeah. the land and nature and stuff like that. And yet there's, you would think it's like one thing that people could be like, yeah, of course, keep Yellowstone where it is. It's like history, it's nature, it's vacation, it's a tourist spot. Uh, but but yeah, in the end, it's like someone has to fund the government as- apparatus around it. And people don't really want to do that. I grew up in the reddest county in New York State and I voted something like 78% Trump. But I imagine a lot of the people that I grew up with that are still there would be uh, pro-national forest here because they're hunters and they love the idea of, like, untouched land and, like, let me just go out and let's let the deer population get out of control and then up my license so I can go knock out a nine-point, you know? Point, nine-point is the amount of points on the horns of the the buck that you kill. (laughs) I feel like it's good to know about each bureaucratic organization like this, like the U.S. Forest Service. Yeah, it's, totally. Because you guys are right that like all of us are excited about nature and the woods and the environment to at least some extent, even if it's just for sport. But then if we don't, if we aren't aware of these different chunks, it's easy to be like, I love nature and that's why I'm, I love this bill that funds the national parks. And then you don't know it's slashing fish and wildlife and, mm-hmm. and forest service and the other parts too. Cause it turns out it's a bunch of interlocking complicated things. Yeah. And you, and you can abstract it and make people hate it easily. It's just like, you want to fund more government, like <laughs> these park rangers who sit around doing nothing, you know, right. You, you could, you could make it, you know, into anyone who doesn't want to fund any government ever. You can make them hate it in an, in the abstract really easily. I think when you mentioned park rangers doing nothing as a trope, I'll bet some people think that and they don't have a mental picture of like, we'll link to articles where you see guys in in pretty smoked up Forest Service jackets because they were just fighting a fire in California. You know, like it's it's a there's mm-hmm. a lot of people doing very hard and, and sometimes life threatening work for these forests. And even more challenging, they have to put up with tourists on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine how hard that is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and not just tourists, American tourists a lot of the time. Can you believe it? I read a quote from a a forest ranger recently. He was asked why garbage cans and garbage uh, receptacles and recycling receptacles aren't more bear-proof at National (laughs) Forest. And he said because there's a significant overlap between really smart bears and really dumb tourists. (laughs) Like, that's why they can't make a better bear-proof can, because people are idiots. Yeah. (laughs) 
What are they just like? I can't open this, and they just throw it at the can, at the garbage can. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> they like can't get it right, open the, either. So it's like, well, this is worse than no garbage can. Yeah, so. that's exactly what it is. is yeah. that is. <laughs> and uh, there's one last main takeaway for the main show, and it's pretty short. Takeaway number three. The U.S. Forest Service recruited America's first black paratroopers. The, the whole show could be hero forest firefighter stories, but there's an amazing World War II story of a group called the Triple Nickels. And I never heard of them until researching this. And they worked with and for the U.S. Forest Service. So they, they got out of the war and kind of transitioned into like public life? So the the tricky thing is it was for the war, and these guys were chosen mainly because of racism. So what happened is the the Triple Nickels were a U.S. Army unit. It was the 555th Parachute Infantry Battalion. That's so a 555 Triple Nickels. And it was black soldiers who wanted to be paratroopers. The trouble is they they were organized in 1943. They were fully trained. But the U.S. military was still segregated at the time. And according to KGW-8 Portland, most black soldiers were relegated to support roles. They were rarely, rarely trained as combat units, let alone elite paratroopers. And so the the brass did not want to send these guys to Europe to fight because they wanted to keep them separate from white troops. And they also, I think, trusted them less than white troops. The other thing that happened is Japan, at the end of 1944, started using experimental balloon bombs to float in the jet stream from Japan all the way to California, Oregon, Washington. And so the triple nickels were sent to the West Coast to like find and extinguish Japanese balloon bombs to prevent forest fires. Did they, did they make it there? Did like balloon bombs make it all the way to the US? That sounds like one of those like, you know, plots that you read about and they scrapped because it was ridiculous. Right. The jet stream's pretty powerful. Man. And it's a long way, but they apparently Japan launched about 9,000 bombs and about 300 made it, but most of them either harmlessly didn't explode. But but there was like, there was one that killed six people in Oregon. There was one that caused a blackout at a facility that was producing plutonium for the Manhattan Project up in Washington State. Like the, the wow, what are the odds that it lands there? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> it's bonkers. And so in Operation Firefly, the 555th Parachute Infantry were sent to deal with bombs, but it turned out just the bombs were super rare. And so then they became the first smoke jumpers uh, from the military in, in the U.S. Forest Service. And a smoke jumper is a parachute fireman who fights forest fires by parachuting in. Um, and the Triple Nickels answered 36 fire calls and made more than 1,200 jumps in the summer of 1945 on the West Coast and did some really revolutionary and important forest firefighting, partly because of racism. Like, they also weren't allowed in the USO at the military base, and they built a second one for them. Like, it was a very segregated time, but they stepped up and did very dangerous and important work because that was what was made available to them. Well came around to being inspiring in the end. I mean, yeah. the circumstances aren't the best, but that's that's really impressive. Crazy, crazy convergence of skills. Right, like it, they were accidentally, they were looking for bombs and then it was just like, well, the forests are full of fires too. Do you want to just do that? And then they did that. Yeah. I, I, I was just distracted. I was imagining a very slow balloon bomb just 
hitting Harry Truman in the face or something. It oh. just like makes its way all the way across. And it's just like, oh, like this balloon, like very slowly. But I'm glad, glad they prevented that or at least the after effects. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm just terrified to go outside. <laughs> Add that to another another reason you might get hit with a flaming balloon in the face <laughs> from World War Two. It just stayed. Yeah, up there it might still be now. hanging around. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> That is the main episode for this week. My thanks to Dan Hopper and Chet Wild for joining me in uh, wanting to visit Gifford Pinchot's castle, or at least I want to. Anyway, I said that's the main episode because there is more secretly incredibly fascinating stuff available to you right now. If you support this show on Patreon.com, patrons get a bonus show every week where we explore one obviously incredibly fascinating story related to the main episode. This week's bonus topic is the surprising origins and character universe of Smokey Bear. Smokey the Bear, he's a U.S. Forest Service creation. Visit sifpod.fun for that bonus show, for a library of more than four dozen other bonus shows, and to back this entire podcast operation. And thank you for exploring the U.S. Forest Service with us. Here's one more run through the big takeaways. Takeaway number one, the U.S. Forest Service is the brainchild of one eccentric, grieving rich guy and his president best friend. Takeaway number two, one massive wildfire saved the U.S. Forest Service and they might have overreacted to that fire. And takeaway number three, the U.S. Forest Service recruited America's first black paratroopers. Those are the takeaways. Also, please follow my guests. They're great. Dan Hopper is a managing editor at Ranker.com. He has many amazing comedy pieces all over. I'm going to link a couple of them. And then he tweets at Dan Hopp. That's Dan H-O-P-P. One of the best Twitter accounts ever. Just great. Chet Wilde is all over the Unpopular Opinion Podcast Network. He's all over Twitter, at Chet Wilde, C-H-E-T-W-I-L-D. And then if I may self-plug within Chet's plug, he's a guest on the fourth and final episode of my podcast miniseries entitled One Way to Make an Emoji. Many research sources this week. Here are some key ones. And the two key ones are two books. One is called Natural Rivals, John Muir, Gifford Pinchot, and the Creation of America's Public Lands. That book is by John Clayton. The other book is called The Big Burn, Teddy Roosevelt and the Fire That Saved America. And that's by Timothy Egan. Beyond those, there's a ton of internet articles backing this, in particular from National Geographic. Find those and many more sources in this episode's links at sifpod.fun. And beyond all that, our theme music is Unbroken, Unshaven by the Budos Band. Our show logo is by artist Burton Durand. Special thanks to Chris Souza for audio mastering on this episode. Extra, extra special thanks go to our patrons. I hope you love this week's bonus show. And thank you to all our listeners. I am thrilled to say we will be back next week with more Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. So how about that? Talk to you then. <laughs>